Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast this week, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki, here as always with John Mitchell. This week we're going to be talking about week four action, some of the big wins and losses over the crazy weekend uh, that really had a big shuffling in the polls. We'll dive into week five this week next in our second segment, uh, looking at a week that on paper looks a little less exciting, but that usually leads to chaos. In our final segment, we'll take a look at a couple of our locks and upset picks against the spread, and we'll give you some of our food and drink suggestions for the weekend. Before we dive in, though, great to see you again, John. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing a lot of a lot better than Jim Harbaugh is this week. That's for sure. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's uh, that's an ugly situation. Which honestly, that you know, it could be best win or a worst loss. But full disclosure, as a Wisconsin fan, uh, somebody who was born in Stevens Point, family all roots for the Badgers, and I was raised to do the same. I really don't have any tears right now for Harbaugh or any of those fans. Um, because obviously that that had to be the best win of the week for me. Um, you know, even a Wolverines partisan has to look at that game and tip their hat to what the Badgers were able to do on the field. Um, you know, they were favored at home, but I don't think anybody expected Wisconsin to do what they did in taking down Michigan 35-14. Um, you know, Jonathan Taylor put up 203 yards and two touchdowns on 23 carries. And, you know, he was gone for a lot of the second quarter dealing with cramps. So just imagine what it would have been like if he'd played for a full four quarters. Um, And that Badgers defense proved that they're the top defense in the country, I think, on Saturday. Uh, Coming into the game, people were a little bit skeptical of classifying them. You know, the way the stats actually had them sitting pitching a couple of shutouts and a couple of cupcake games is, you know, not going to get people absolutely excited, but beating Michigan the way they did, that opened some eyes. So we saw them vault up five spots in both polls. They're at number eight in the AP top 25 now, and they're at number nine in the coaches poll. And on a day when we had a couple of big top 25 matchups, this was the one that probably had the most resonant impact. The other two games went down to the wire, didn't really lead to big reshufflings, but this one was just a massive, massive win for Wisconsin. Absolutely. You know, the talk all offseason with Urban Meyer leaving Ohio State was that it would be Michigan kind of stepping up to take the the mantle as the team to beat in the Big Ten and take over. And it, now, I mean, obviously the biggest threat to Ohio State's autonomy at the top of the Big Ten is is Wisconsin. I mean, after the first couple of games, they looked like the biggest threat to the Buckeyes this season. But, you know, you could chalk it up to, okay, they played South Florida, they played Central Michigan. Sure, they blew them out. Sure, they looked like a much improved team from a year ago. But also, neither of those teams were expected to be real competitive in those games. But then you go out and you jump up 35 to nothing on Michigan before the Wolverines even really know what's going on. They were the better team by far on Saturday. They were better coached. They were better prepared. They had better players, it looked like, across the board. But I want to focus on the other side, and that's how devastating of a defeat that is for Michigan. You could easily classify it as the worst loss of the week just because of the the final score. It's not my worst loss of the week to kind of keep everything separate, but if I could, just with all the expectations for the Wolverines this year, we talked about at the end of last year how important this season was for Harbaugh, particularly after how last season finished, getting blown out um, at the Horseshoe by Ohio State, getting blown out in the Peach Bowl by Florida. This is a make-or-break year for him. Now you're talking about a team that could easily be one and two if it wasn't for some fortuitous fumble luck against Army. Michigan sitting here at one and two with back-to-back defeats to Army and Wisconsin, and their season's heading in the wrong direction. I still think it's heading in the wrong direction this year. This looks like a a team that's more likely to finish seven and five or eight and four than finish in the top tier of the Big Ten standings. There's several more losses coming. The offense is still just stuck in, you know, college football past, it seems. The big splash hire this offseason was bringing in Josh Gaddis, uh, who was Alabama's wide receiver coach, and 
self-proclaimed architect of Alabama's explosive offense last year, but it's important to remember that Nick Saban had the opportunity to promote Josh Gaddis at the end of last season and declined. I should have told Jim Harbaugh he really needed to know. Instead, he rolled the dice, and here you are. You're only managing 14 points in this huge game, and that 14 points was kind of, I mean, after the game was already well in hand, right? I mean, the game was 35 to nothing late third quarter. Wisconsin relaxes a little bit, and Michigan's able to get on the board. So huge big, huge win for Wisconsin. Uh, they look like a legitimate Big Ten and playoff contender this season, but uh, on the other side, just a massive loss for Michigan. You have to start wondering, is Jim Harbaugh on the hot seat at this point? Yeah, I, I, I'm glad we talked about it from the other angle as well, because that Michigan offense had no identity. And the defense, you know, they knew exactly what Wisconsin was going to do, which is what Wisconsin always does. And that's run the ball down your throat. And Wisconsin did that without any problem whatsoever. I mean, even when Jonathan Taylor was sitting in the medical tent and went to the locker room, the rest of Wisconsin's backs were still able to churn out hard yards over and over again. And Michigan's at number 20. They still have the opportunity to climb right back up the poles, but they've really got to discover who they are and who they want to be if that's at all possible. And honestly, at this point, I think when you're trying to do that in midseason, you've already lost the gambit. Right. 57 carries, 359 yards, and five rushing touchdowns were the stats for Wisconsin on Saturday. You do not see Michigan's defense under Harbaugh giving up those kind of numbers. If the defense is going to take a step back and the offense hasn't moved forward, this team's going to fall pretty hard this year, it looks like. So my best win of the week is kind of the is the Jekyll and Hyde USC Trojans who you never know week to week. One week it looks like, okay, maybe USC is a legit Pac-12 contender. The next week it looks like Clay Helton's going to be fired any minute. And then we're back on the other side of things this week where, hey, USC looks like a Pac-12 contender once again. Uh, they earned a massive victory in the Pac-12 South race this, uh, on Friday night. Uh, with the new starting quarterback once again, maybe that's the trick for USC is to just start a new quarterback every single week because Matt Fink went out there um, and replaced the injured Keaton Slovis and went out there and was 21 of 30, 351 yards and three touchdowns. And USC took down Utah, who a lot of people had pegged at this point as the Rose Bowl favorite and maybe the Pac-12's best sh- chance of uh, a playoff bid this year. Now USC is not only pulling out that win, but now firmly in control of their own destiny in the Pac-12 South race. Um, Just a massive win for the Trojans, a massive win for Clay Helton, who it seems his fortunes change week to week. You know, they they hammer Stanford, everything's all gravy, lose to BYU, everything's bad again, and then they come back and beat Utah. And what a huge win, too, Zach, when you look at their upcoming schedule, consecutive road games coming up at Washington and at Notre Dame after that. So just a massive win must-have win for USC's hopes for the rest of the season. Yeah, that was unbelievable. I really did not see that coming, obviously. Uh, I thought Utah was a much more complete team than that. But at the same time, just we might have been too hasty to write off USC after that BYU loss. I mean, after all, this is a team that's 3-1. and one. Their only losses in overtime, you know, the old Les Miles argument that they haven't lost in regulation. So I, I think on that note, USC is quickly starting to reassert its presence. It, it all comes down to health. You know, there's only so many quarterbacks on that roster. And at a certain point, they got really lucky that Matt Fink didn't transfer, uh, Because, you know, if he hadn't been there, it's hard to imagine that this game would have gone the same way because he wasn't an old hat at it, a steady hand that's been with the program for a couple of years and has kind of bided his time. And it's good to see him finally get that opportunity, definitely. It's, you know, it's always nice to see somebody who actually went through it and put in the hard hours finally get their moment in the sun or... In this case, you know, the uh, West Coast evening um, under the lights. But 
really big victory for USC for sure. They they really pulled one out there, and as you said, now they completely control their destiny. They're two up in the South. Uh, they watched Utah lose. Arizona State went out and lost. And now, you know, the only undefeated team being Cal in that entire conference, it becomes really interesting to see who that who the one loss team is that steps up biggest. And USC certainly has that opportunity to continue that growth pattern and actually make that charge toward the, the championship. Do you think it takes a Rose Bowl berth for USC this year to bring Clay Helton back? I don't I don't think merely a Pac twelve South championship is going to be enough if you're talking about a a nine and three usc team who then goes and plays oregon or washington for the pac-12 title and then loses and goes nine and four do you think that is enough for him to save his job and move uh forward with usc in 2020 or do you think it really takes a pac-12 title this year to really reinvigorate the fan base you know at the beginning of the year i would have said it takes that rose bowl and he really has to make that next leap but given how much they've dealt with injuries at that quarterback position, I get the feeling that fans and, you know, the especially the administration might be a little bit more lenient about that. Obviously, I think it at least requires winning the division title and getting to the Pac-12 championship game. But, you know, if he loses to a higher-ranked Oregon team or Washington team or Cal team, I I don't think it's going to be the end of the world for his job because just getting to that game with the way they've had to patch things together week after week before we're even out of September is really quite impressive when you step back for a moment and actually give it the thousand yard stare. Yeah, I think I agree. It's a really brutal schedule too, if you think of it, because just those three teams you mentioned who might be the biggest uh, challengers to play USC in the Pac-12 championship game. They play in the regular season, cross division, you know, and they get two of them on the road. They got to go to Washington. They got to go to Cal. Oregon comes to the Coliseum, but even still, very difficult schedule. I think it all comes down to who they think they can get. If they've got a, you know, verbal commitment, as you'd say, from Urban Meyer, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe even a Pac-12 title doesn't do it because they think the potential they've got there. But it all comes down to that, I think. But hats off to Clay Helton. He's been under tremendous scrutiny and USC being off to a three and one start against the schedule they face so far is very impressive. Undoubtedly shifting gears from that, you know, best wins are best wins, but there are obviously some tough losses this weekend. We already talked about Michigan. I think you can also lump Utah into that, that batch as well, but who was the absolute worst loss you saw this weekend? Uh, the worst loss of the weekend was was Arkansas to me, dropping a 31 to 24 decision at home to San Jose State. We've talked a lot about how good the Mountain West is this season. We didn't ever mention San Jose State though when we talked about the powers of the Mountain West for a reason because they've long been a downtrodden program in the Mountain West. Aside from the the one the couple of years there where they had kind of a come up with, I believe it was Mike McIntyre was the head coach there if I don't remember. Um, before he got the Colorado gig. So they had that kind of reprieve there, but they've long been an also ran in that conference. And to see them go to Fayetteville and punch Arkansas in the mouth when 31 to 24 is just, just another sign that this Razorbacks program has fallen really, really hard uh, really since Bobby Petrino fell so hard off that motorcycle a few years ago. <laughs> um uh, you know, Brett Bielema had a little bit of success, and then it all just started going downhill. And obviously, Chad Morris is struggling to get that program back. It's not a lack of talent because Arkansas was easily the most talented team on the field that uh, this past Saturday night against San Jose State. They certainly had the edge and talent. It's just execution. Nick Starkle threw five interceptions. It's hard to beat anybody when you throw five interceptions like that. So, just a huge. Uh, stunner. San Jose State's first win against a Power 5 program uh, since 2006, um, actually, on wow. Saturday. So just a, a baffling loss for Arkansas uh, and potentially their la- one of their last opportunities to earn a win this season. If you can't beat San Jose State, I'm not going to have much confidence in you beating anybody else. Maybe they beat Western Kentucky, but they're staring at another 3-4 win season at best, it looks like. 
yeah, things are really falling off the rails in Fayetteville, and honestly, they have been the past couple years, and it, it's hard to imagine anything turning right this season at all for that team. Uh, you know, San Jose State, I definitely think, is a team that we might have slept on. They're definitely much, much improved from where they've been the past couple years, but both of those teams have been pretty abysmal in recent history, and as an SEC school, there's no excuse losing to the dregs of the Mountain West. And yes, it's a testament to the fact that the Mountain West is a much deeper conference than people really give credit, but you're the SEC, I, I, I and I hate to pull that card because I, I think conference affiliation gets a little bit too worked up, but you're getting SEC money. You're, you've got those resources. You should, you know, like losing to a Boise State is one thing. Right. Losing to a San Jose State team that struggled to meet, meet bowl eligibility the past couple of years is a completely different thing. So, yeah, I, I think that's an absolutely ghastly loss. I think it's a great choice for that, that pick. Did you, uh, real quick, did you see uh, Arkansas's Twitter account on Saturday post uh, half? They just had a, an image of Arkansas versus San Jose State, State. It usually has a score, but it was 24-7 San Jose State. All it said was halftime. It was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. They just refused to tweet out the score. Their fans were ripping them as they should have. Oh, man, I did not see that, but thank you for pointing it out. I'm going to have to go back into their account and laugh about that. Well, you know, I, I think that was an absolutely horrible loss. I prob- It was one I definitely had shortlisted as well. But I stayed up late on Saturday night, and now that I'm on the East Coast, I'm going to continue saying it. it. It's an effort to stay up late on, on Saturday night, and I'm really glad I did. Uh, Washington State should never have lost that game against UCLA. Um, you know, every week I put out the projections of where teams are going to land in the AP Top 25. It goes online at halftime of those late night games. And Washington State was leading 35-17 against the Bruins at halftime. I I was completely comfortable keeping the Cougars not just in my Top 25, but moving them up to the Top 15 the way they were playing. Um, here's what I wrote in, in the column itself. I wrote, quote, barring a massive second half collapse, the Cougars will push up a few spots in the polls for next week's trip to Salt Lake City to face Utah, end quote. I had no clue that saying barring a massive second half collapse was actually going to come to fruition. You know, those were famous last words. Mike Leach's team came out after halftime and just threw away the game. Uh, how do you, I mean... I know Chip Kelly offenses from my time in Oregon, but to give up 50 points the way the Bruins have been playing in two quarters is unfathomable. Um, Yes, Washington State doesn't have the best defense in the world, but that's still unfathomable. Um, Anthony Gordon was lights out as well. You know, he had five touchdown passes by halftime. He'd he'd matched his, uh, his... season high in a game by halftime he ended up throwing nine touchdown passes and 570 yards on 41 of 61 passing and Washington State lost that game 67-63 I'm still kind of flabbergasted by it I woke up the next morning and was stunned and I watched the game to the end you know I woke up and it was like oh my goodness that's right Washington State lost that game Um, So, you know, the Cougars lost what was probably going to be one of the easier games on their scheduling conference this year. And it really kind of gives, you know, two things. First of all, hooray for UCLA. You know, we've kind of expected over the past couple years that Chip's been there that they were on the cusp of having a game like this and really breaking out. But Nobody would have expected this, you know, coming into the game or even when you saw that halftime score. So uh, what does Mike Leach do from there? I stayed up and watched the game, too. I kept getting ready to turn it off like I I almost turned it off. It was 49. It got worse after halftime. It was 49 to 17 in the third quarter. Washington State scored the first two touchdowns after halftime. It's a 32 point game. 
I'm about to turn it off. UCLA scores quick. Then they turn it over and score again. And I'm like, I guess I'm going to keep watching this game for a few more minutes. Surely Wazoo's going to wake up and put this away. And just credit to UCLA for not giving up and fighting the way they did. To me, that's that's the type of game that can change a whole program's complexion. Because UCLA was staring 0-4 in the face in that game, down 32 points in the third quarter, pretty much ending any shot they had of bowl eligibility if they weren't able to pull off that comeback. Credit to Dorian Thompson-Robinson. He caught fire. That could easily be the best win of the week as well if you looked at it from UCLA's perspective. A massive win, but certainly an awful loss, especially at Washington State. All the fans in Pullman just sitting there in complete shock to watch that comeback. Certainly. You know, I think it was definitely also one of the biggest surprises of the week, which just kind of throws us right into that part of this first segment. Um I, I, I was tempted to put that in here, but it was just such a bad loss. I had to put it as a, the worst loss. So, um, you know, I was tempted as well to go with UCF's loss at Pitt. You know, their first uh, regular season loss in 27 games. But, you know, the one that really astounded me most was SMU taking back the iron skillet after nine years. And... Uh, not 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 even just that they did, but the way that they did it. They really just deconstructed TCU. And the Horn Frogs came in fresh with a number 25 next to their name and really looked like they had momentum going into Big 12 play. But SMU broke them down on both sides of the field. Max Dugan looked like a true freshman quarterback. Um, you know, he had his moments there toward the end as TCU brought it closer. But for most of the game, SMU was up by two scores. Uh, Shane Bouchel, the former Texas quarterback, looked really great in Mustangs white. Um, you know, threw for 288 yards and a pair of scores. Um, ran in another one on the ground. And, you know, Mustangs are 4-0 for the first time since before they had the death penalty. Yeah, it's it's been 1984 since SMU was this good on the field, and uh, yeah, I was not expecting that result as much as I expected improvement from SMU this year. I did not expect them to be one of the last remaining undefeated teams in the American Athletic Conference. So, yeah, I think that's a great pick. Uh, Shane Bouchelle turning out to be one of the most underrated transfer pickups of the offseason. He's been terrific for SMU. Sonny Dykes getting another shot as a head coach, doing a great job uh, for the Mustangs so far. SMU looks like a legit mountain or legit American Athletic Conference contender at this point. And on the flip side of that, TCU still can't figure it out at quarterback. This will be the second straight year they just had really atrocious quarterback play. But the bigger surprise was the fact that Gary Patterson's defense looked confused and just outclassed most of the night, something you don't normally see. They ended up scoring, what, 38 points in that game, which should be enough uh, for a team that should be as good defensively as the Horn Frogs are. So doesn't look like TCU is going to contend for that spot in the Big 12 championship game this year. They're going to be probably, once again, scrapping around bowl eligibility. Uh, for my most surprising, I stuck with the American Athletic Conference, but it was kind of the flip side uh, instead of a nice win, it was kind of a bad loss when you look at it. I was stunned. I didn't watch any of this game. I was stunned when I pulled up and was looking at scores uh, on Saturday afternoon to see that Buffalo had rolled over Temple 38-22 to um, on Saturday afternoon. Just I think that was a game that not a lot of people were paying a lot of attention to. Buffalo had come into the game, was 1-2, and two, and hadn't looked very good, had just lost 35-17 to 17 to Liberty the week before with Tyree Jackson gone. Uh, the Bulls just didn't look like a legit contender in the MAC this year. Uh, Temple's coming off, having just beaten Maryland with a huge win, looked really good, and they come out and they get honestly run off the field. I mean, it was 38-22 final, but I mean, we're talking about a 38 to 10 game with eight minutes to go in the third quarter. Uh, four turnovers for Temple really hurt. Anthony Russo threw three picks, including one that got housed. Uh, Jarrett Patterson ran for 133 yards and a pair of scores for Buffalo and Buffalo won despite uh, their starting quarterback going throwing for only 62 yards. So a really stunning result to me. It looked like the Owls 
were legit and were going to contend uh, in the AAC and just, you know, they still might because this game doesn't hurt in that respect. But just I was really stunned when I saw that score. Yeah, it was it was an interesting weekend for that conference all around. You know, the American had a couple of really ugly losses, uh, but they were out of conference, as you said. So that picture is still wide open on both sides of the, you know, on both divisions. But yeah, I mean, and then you have SMU pulling off that huge win. And uh, then also the Houston Tulane game on Friday night going down to the wire. So, you know, that was a conference game. And it's just really interesting to see how that all shakes up. And uh, before I go to game balls, I just want to point out quick now that since we're talking about the American, what do you think of Derek King uh, deciding to uh red shirt the rest of the season and debate whether or not he's going to be uh staying in Houston next year. It was surprising um you know cuz this this red shirt rule that you know the coach has really pushed for is kind of turning on their heads and it's kind of funny to see because no one really anticipated players using it to their advantage but you know the rules there for a reason it can be bent and manipulated and Derek King's doing that and the only odd thing is that he released a statement saying that he planned on returning to Houston. So I'm confused as to why at this point you would do that to just still remain at Houston. If he decided to transfer and was on the grad transfer market, he'd be the most highly sought after quarterback on the market this year, just with his dual threat ability and everything like that. So that was what was surprising to me. Well, and I think part of that is, having to get good PR at the beginning. I mean, his father released a statement saying he's looking to transfer. So it it really comes down to, you know, obviously you want to be able to believe the player up front, just, you know, no, no question. But when your parent is kind of preempting you by saying, yeah, he's looking to transfer, it, it really kind of takes the wind out of the sails of whatever official statement you're putting out there. So, you know, I honestly, I, I, I put out on uh, Monday an article looking at this, and I honestly think he's going to be in the next great Oklahoma quarterback, the way things are going. I mean, I, I think Norman has become transfer quarterback university. So uh, just to throw my money in there, um, but boy, would it also be fun to see him in that Washington State offense taking over for Anthony Gordon. So i say Oklahoma's the most popular choice. I don't see that happening just because they just signed the number one quarterback in the country last year and Spencer Rattler. I don't know. Uh, I think if you bring in another transfer quarterback at that point, he probably explores his options um, to leave, having had that happen to him twice now. So I don't know. Washington State would be a really good fit, I think, for sure. There's no shortage of programs who could be interested Uh, I mean, what if he decided he wanted to go to Alabama, for instance, and they needed a bridge quarterback for a year after two was gone if Talia is not ready or the five-star kid, Bryce Young, who just decommitted from USC and is now going to Alabama. He could be a fascinating bridge quarterback uh, for even an Alabama next season. Definitely. Well, now that we're talking about players themselves, let's shift into our game balls before we head to our first break. Who'd you like on offense and defense this week, John? On offense, I like Jonathan Taylor. Uh, Obviously, he had a a monster game. I mean, he had, before anyone could even get on their couch good and get seated and ready for that game, he had over 100 yards. I mean, he had 143 yards and a couple of touchdowns in the first quarter alone. Missed the second quarter, like you said, due to cramps and came back and finished off a 200-yard day in the second half. Could have had a record-setting day if it wasn't for the second quarter cramps because he was doing anything he wanted. Obviously, Wisconsin's offensive line deserves a lot of credit. They look once again like a a vintage Badger offensive line. But Jonathan Taylor looks like he's found another gear this year, which is incredible considering how amazing he was as a freshman and as a, and as a sophomore. He looks like he's kicked it into another gear this year and is just outright dominating college football so far. You know, say what you will about the first two opponents, but to do that to a Michigan defense was just unreal to me. Um, on the other side of the ball uh, on defense, I really like Derek Brown's performance at Auburn, the Auburn defensive tackle against Texas A&M. He was an integral part in Auburn, just kind of winning that battle up front, which we had talked about last week potentially being the difference in the game is can A&M run the ball effectively against Auburn's defensive front? And the answer was a resounding no. 
Uh, Derek Brown had a couple sacks harassed. Um, Kellen Mond had three tackles for loss, and Auburn collectively held Texas A&M to 21 carries for 56 yards on the ground. And on a day where Bo Nix got a lot of credit at Auburn, you look back at it, he only threw for 100 yards. He had a lot of help from um, his team, and had it not been for Auburn's defense playing lights out, if not for Derek Brown those guys, then this game would have probably been very different because Auburn didn't do a lot on offense uh, to give themselves a lot of room, but very impressed with Derek Brown. He's one of the best players in college football, and I wanted to shout him out. Yeah, I think those are both great selections. I obviously love the Taylor pick, but yeah, both sides of the ball, great. Personally, I'm going to give a little love to the the group of five, big shocker, um, but with my offensive game ball, I'm throwing that to Florida Atlantic wide receiver D'Angelo Antoine. Um, yeah, it only came against an FCS opponent, but what Antoine did on the field would be astounding against anybody. You know, the Owls receiver had 11 receptions, 173 yards, and caught four of Chris, uh, Chris Robeson's five touchdown passes. Um, when you're hauling in four touchdown passes in a game, you're elite. And so... Um, you know, the Owls blew out Wagner 42-7, got back to 500 in the standings, and Antoine was a massive part of why they did that. And then on the other side of the ball, um, Cal would not be the last undefeated team in the Pac-12 if it was not for Evan Weaver. He was just all over the place on the field for that defense at linebacker on Saturday. Um, you know, it could have really turned ugly. Cal was playing, uh, you know, a 9 a.m. or it was basically 9 a.m. for them on the West Coast, getting that early start in Oxford. Um, but he racked up 11 solo tackles, chipped in on 11 other tackles, finished with 22 total. Um, you know, he pitched in on a tackle for loss. He had half a sack, um, hurried Matt Corral multiple times as you know Cal barely held on for that 28-20 win and uh got the goal line stand at the on that last play I don't think Cal is you know 4-0 if they if he doesn't pull that out so um he definitely gets my defensive game ball this week yeah I, I mean Weaver also he's the guy who made the tackle to save the game unsurprisingly at the end that's two games this year already where he's had 20 plus tackles you can go ahead and lock in one of the All-American spots this early in the season. Linebacker Evan Weaver from Cal will be a first-team All-American at the end of the year, barring injury at this point. Yeah, exactly. As long as he stays healthy, he's just going to continue being a rock for a Cal defense that has been really good so far this year. And honestly, they were great last year as well. Um, you know, we saw them upset Washington last year as well. So uh, I think he gets a lot of the credit for just keeping that defense steady all around. On that note, everybody, we're going to head to break quick. And when we come back, we'll be talking about week five action against the spread. Stay tuned. Welcome back from our first break, everybody, to the Saturday Blitz podcast. In the second segment, as always, we're going to be diving into our five key games against the spread this week. First game we have on tap is one that's happening tomorrow night. Uh, great Thursday night matchup between a pair of undefeated American Athletic Conference teams. Uh, Navy and Memphis uh, hit the field there at the Liberty Bowl Stadium on Thursday. Memphis comes in as a 10.5 point favorite in this only matchup of undefeated teams this week. Uh, kind of funny to see that happening this early. Um, but what do you think is going to be key in this contest, John? I think it's all going to depend on can Memphis's defense get off the field. When you're playing an option offense like Navy, Navy's whole goal in the game is going to be to shorten Memphis's opportunities, right? They're going to try to grind out drives, gain four yards on first down, four more on second down, and get just enough on third. Crank out 16, 17, 18 play drives that keep Brady White and that high-powered Memphis offense on the sideline. So can Memphis's defense stand tall, get off the field on third downs, not let Navy continuously convert third down conversions the entire game? Um, I think that's going to be kind of what really makes the game. And I think Memphis sees an opportunity. You know, obviously UCF losing an out-of-conference game doesn't knock them out of the American race. 
But for the first time in a couple of years, UCF looks mortal. You know, losing to Pitt on the road like that, there's a chink in the armor. Memphis senses that, I think. And I think they're right on the prowl to try to take the American away. They're certainly talented enough to do so. I'm not sold yet on Navy. Uh, Their wins over Holy Cross and East Carolina, they looked better than they have last year. But neither of those opponents were ever going to pose much of a threat. I like Memphis in this game. I don't know how confident I feel about 10 and a half kind of high, uh, but I think Memphis will probably ultimately cover and you'll see something along the lines of 31 17 in favor of the Tigers at home. I, I think that's probably fair. Um, I have Navy beating the spread, but not beating Memphis overall. I see something closer to probably 31 24. Um, but, you know, Malcolm Perry is really the linchpin for that Navy offense. Uh, the quarterback, uh, a- as you might expect in the option, leads the team in both passing and rushing. And I think it's really daring him to, to throw the ball, first of all, and then really making sure that he's forced to get the ball to his other options by any means necessary because he he's just been the key. On the other side, um, I've been really impressed with Kenneth Gainwell. Uh, He looked really great for Memphis against South Alabama, putting up a 145-yard game, and he just looks like he's ready to break out as the next great Tigers running back. Um, You know, we've seen great running backs come through there uh, in recent years, but he just looks like he's ready to jump, jump there as well, so... Well, it's probably not going to make our fellow Saturday Blitz writer and uh, former Navy punter Gavin Jernigan very happy. I'm picking Navy to cover, but I don't think they're going to actually win it. Yeah, that's that's I mean, it's we'll see. You know, it's really hard to kind of project Navy at this point because they weren't a very good football team last year. They certainly look better this year. But This is their first test Uh, with Memphis being at home. It just makes me want to lean more towards them covering. Yeah, I, I, I totally think that's fair. Um, you know, if it was a nine and a half point spread, I'd be more inclined to take Memphis. But there's just something about being above that 10 points that I could see it being 31-21 and Navy still covers. So shifting gears, we talked about the only matchup of undefeated teams this week. Now let's shift to Saturday and talk about the only matchup between top 25 teams this week. This is the uh, Saturday uh, early slate contest between, or second slate contest between USC and Washington. The Huskies are now sitting at number 17. USC climbed all the way up to number 21. Um, But as we said in the first segment, USC is on their third string quarterback. Um, You know, Matt Fink looked like the real deal uh, in going 70% and throwing for 351 yards and three touchdowns, but he's still the, the backup quarterback or the third string quarterback as it started at the beginning of the season. Um, Washington obviously has sort of the transitive property advantage. They beat BYU in Provo, uh, USC lost in overtime to in Provo to BYU, um, And Jacob Eason finally looked good for the Huskies. You know, he really finally had that breakout performance that I think we've all been waiting for, going 24 of 28 and throwing for 290 and three touchdowns. So um, I think this is going to be a really fun matchup. But at a 10-point spread in Washington's favor, do you uh, think that's too high? I... I think it's probably fair with Washington being at home. I think if the game was at USC, you'd see it kind of under a touchdown. Um, But with them being at home, I think 10 points is probably fair. Again, it depends on what USC we see. Is it going to be Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde? Basically how this season's gone so far, it's probably going to be Mr. Hyde, right? After playing well last week, they might come back down to earth this week. I was really impressed with Jacob Eason against BYU. That's a really solid BYU defense that he really shredded. And we've talked about all offseason in the early going. If he can take that step and be the quarterback that he's got the potential to be, then Washington is really, really dangerous and could easily uh, run away with the Pac-12 and potentially even get back in the playoff picture, depending on how well Cal continues to do the rest of the season. So I think it's fair. I I'm on the fence with this one. I think it's a tough pick. I would probably say 10 is probably going to be 
the margin at the end of the day. If it was nine and a half, I'd go Washington. So I would say I'd see something along the lines of 34-24 in favor of Washington. Close game into the fourth quarter. Maybe Eason throws a late touchdown pass to kind of put USC away uh, and, and pull out the win for the Huskies. Interesting. So a push on this one. I like it. Um, you know, if he does get that late uh, touchdown, I think it goes to a push. But I personally think this is going to be a defensive battle. Um, I don't know why necessarily, um, but I just think Washington's going to be able to, you know, do some things that are going to make Fink uncomfortable in that in that uh, Trojans backfield. And at the same time, USC has been good on defense. We saw what they did against Utah. You know, it's not like BYU blew them out of the water in that only loss. And they obviously were able to shut down Stanford pretty handily as well. So I think this comes close. I, I had it at like Washington 23-20. So as I said, you know, Eason throws that late touchdown. They they get the push and everybody gets their money back. Um, I don't know how satisfying that is for you betters out there, but that's the way I see it shaking out. Moving on to our third game, uh, Virginia heads to South Bend to take on number 10 Notre Dame in the shadow of touchdown Jesus, and they're going to be doing that as an 11-point underdog. Um, obviously, the Cavaliers struggled to put away Old Dominion this week. They were down for much of that game before they finally pulled away there in the fourth quarter and won at 28-17. Um, do you think that... It, uh, 11 points might be even too low for this game. No, I actually like where that spread is, to be honest. No one needs this win more than the ACC, right? Like, the ACC is, their entire conference is going to be sitting their fingers crossed. Please let Virginia pull this off to get some more legitimacy to the league. Uh, the Cavaliers, they're pretty shaky 4-0, um, having survived against Florida State, survived against Old Dominion. They do have an impressive road win over Pitt, though, that's looking better by the day after the Panthers knocked off UCF. So I think part of their issue last week was the classic case of looking ahead to this week's uh, matchup with Notre Dame. I'm kind of expecting Notre Dame to come out a little flat. You know, you're coming off the marquee matchup against Georgia where, you know, honestly, the Irish were impressive in that game. I was more impressed with them than I was Georgia. No one expected Notre Dame to win that game. They fought tooth and nail and were right there at the end and had a shot to to tie the game at the end. That was really impressive, particularly in that really rocking Sanford Stadium environment. But this is kind of the case of a hangover, I think. I'm expecting a bit of a hangover for the Irish. I don't expect it to be enough for them to lose outright, but I think Virginia is going to cover the spread pretty comfortably. I like Notre Dame 24-20, but I like for Ian Book to lead a late touchdown drive to um, ultimately finally subdue a stubborn Cavaliers team in South Bend. But I think this game's going to be close. It wouldn't stun me in any, in any way if Virginia pulled off the upset. I'd love to see Virginia pull off the upset just because they're a team that's been fun to see kind of come out of the dregs in the past couple of years under Bronco Mendenhall. But at the same time, uh, the one thing that really gives me pause about them is that running game. I mean, Bryce Perkins led the team last week in rushing with 35 yards. And it's one thing if your quarterback is leading the team in rushing and is, you know, an otherworldly runner. But when it's somebody like Perkins, who is just not a guy with wheels by any means... It starts to get a little concerning. I, I think that beating Notre Dame is going to be really difficult in that situation. And even putting points on that Notre Dame defense is going to be difficult if they can't get the ground game going beyond Perkins. Um, so, honestly, I think that this spread could have gone to 14 points, and I'd probably still take Notre Dame, honestly. I'm looking at it like 35-17. I think Notre Dame comes out. They showed that they belonged against Georgia, even if they didn't actually win that game. Um, and did did really great. It looked like, you know, they had the chance there down until the, you know, later in the second half. And so I think they come out motivated to show that they deserve to still be in the top 10 uh, because there were questions whether they would actually remain in the top 10. And uh, yeah, so I'm looking at like 
18 point spread on this one. I'm I'm saying 35-17. So yeah, I mean, if Notre Dame plays up to their potential, they certainly have the ability to cover this spread. I'm just expecting that that emotional game hangover from last Saturday night to catch up for a while. Maybe Virginia even leads at halftime, uh, and then Notre Dame comes out in the second half and is able to escape. But I expect a really close game. I, you very well might be might be right on that one. We'll find out soon enough. Um, moving on to the penultimate game we're looking at in this segment. Uh, Kansas State is now ranked number 24, even though they were idle over the weekend, thanks to all the the twists and turns that we got in week four. And they're heading to take on an Oklahoma State team that lost a really disappointing game at Texas. Uh, you know, the Cowboys looked like they, they could very well have beaten the Longhorns, but uh, Sam Ellinger pulled that out in the the second half and allowed Texas to pull away with that game. Um, Oklahoma state is a four point favorite in this game, even though Kansas state is the team that's ranked and, and has the undefeated record in their first season under uh, new coach, Chris Kleeman. So um, what do you think is actually going to transpire in this game? Do you think Oklahoma state covers that game and just restores their place in the big 12? I think Oklahoma State looked pretty good against Texas. Honestly, they were right there at the end of that game, played really well. They're still not quite there, but they certainly look more consistent than last year. And then on the other side, you mentioned Chris Clayman, who, I mean, what a job he's done already. Kansas State was a really poor football team last year. They're already in the top 25. They're 3-0. and They've got an impressive road win over Mississippi State already on their resume. So they already know how to win on the road going to Stillwater this week. And I think this will be a bounce back week for Oklahoma State. Uh, Spencer Sanders, young quarterbacks, made some mistakes early in the season, but he's got a ton of talent. Chuba Hubbard as well, obviously. We've talked about him at length on the podcast. And Tylen Wallace, at receiver. I like all those guys. I don't know if Kansas State's offense has enough to keep up with Oklahoma State's offense. Um, if this game becomes the potential, it has to be of being a track meet. Uh, so I like Oklahoma State. It's gonna be. It's not going to be a blowout or anything like that, but I think four, four and a half points gives you enough to still side with the Cowboys in this one. I, I like the I like the Pokes 34-27. Okay. I personally, I, I, I think Kansas State doesn't win, win this game necessarily, but I think it's a field goal game. I, I think that Kansas State has a good enough passing defense that they're going to force Oklahoma State to rely on their running game. And that's going to allow them to, uh, you know, at least mitigate what Hubbard can actually do on the field. Um, That run defense isn't the best by any means. They're right middle of the pack at 57th nationally, giving away 137 yards a game. But I don't think Hubbard's going to rack up just like... He's not going to go for 150. He's not going to go for 200. And I think that he has to top at least 150 with the way that this Kansas State defense can shut down a passing game uh, to to really beat that spread. I think it really will come down to a field goal one way or another, and I wouldn't be surprised if the Wildcats did pull it out and stayed undefeated by any means. Um, But yeah, one way or another, I personally thought that four just sets up really nicely to to let it come down to one of those last-minute field goals. Wow, a lot of disagreement this week. I like it. Yeah, yeah. It seemed like we agreed a lot on everything last week, and nothing really fell into place the way we were expecting. So we'll see what actually happens this week, folks. That just means there's going to be chaos this week is what I'm feeling with us having this many disagreements. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's hard to sort out what actually happens in these games is really what that comes down to, everybody. <laughs> and speaking about that, I bet we have another crazy one in this last game. Uh, we get more Pac-12 after dark action on Saturday night. Washington State plays in another one of these games, and so does Utah. We talked about both of these teams in that opening segment. And, uh, you know, they're both coming off losses, both looking for a rebound. This game is happening in Salt Lake City, and Utah's a six-and-a-half-point favorite. Um, Do you think the the Utes pull this off against the Cougars, and do you think that they cover that, that spread with at least a touchdown victory? 
You know, this is a difficult one because both teams really need this win after kind of disappointing losses last week. Um, honestly, if Washington State hadn't fallen to UCLA, I might be more inclined to pick Utah here because the more desperate team prevails. But both teams are going to come into this game really desperate. I just haven't been that impressed with Utah so far this season. Even in their wins, they haven't been all that impressive. They got pretty fortunate with some BYU turnovers in the opener to kind of run away with that one. But they struggled for a while against Northern Illinois the next week. They only put 31 points on Idaho State. Do the Utes have enough offense to stick with Washington State if this game becomes as high scoring and has the potential to be? How impressive has Anthony Gordon been for the Cougars so far? No fault of his own that they lost last week. I mean, he threw nine touchdown passes. He's already thrown 21 touchdown passes in four games this season on pace for just a monster season on the Palouse. I actually really like the Cougars to bounce back not only cover the spread, but upset the Utes on Saturday night and some more wacky Pac-12 after dark action. I think Washington State's passing offense is ultimately going to be the difference. I like Washington State uh, to win the game uh, 34-31, something along the lines. Close game, could go either way, but I like the Cougars to ultimately pull this one out. We actually agree on something. All right. Ah. Um, you know, Washington State has won four in a row against the Utes. I think it's going to be five in a row, and I think it's exactly because of why you mentioned. Um, Utah really struggled in containing Matt Fink on uh, last Friday. And uh, when, you know, I mean, obviously USC recruits quarterbacks that aren't your run-of-the-mill quarterback. So saying that a third stringer put up 351 yards and three touchdowns on you and completed 70% of his passes doesn't look as bad when you're saying USC's third stringer did it. But if you're allowing that against any quarterback, it puts a big strain on your offense. And if any passing attack is going to put a massive strain on the Utah secondary, it's Washington State's passing attack. So, yeah, I agree 100% because Gordon has looked even better than previous Leach quarterbacks have in this offense. You know, we saw Gardner Minshew excel. We saw Luke Folk excel in this defense. We saw Connor Halliday excel in this offense. Excuse me, this offense, yeah. Um, but, you know, Gordon is doing even better. I, 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 you know, even at this point with 21 touchdowns, he's probably going to have more touchdown passes if he stopped playing right now than at least one third of the teams in the F FBS this year. Like, that's how good he's playing, you know. He could, he could easily throw for 60 the way he's going. Uh, you know, he's averaging five a game, so you figure... He's, he's got to get there pretty pretty handily. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking at I – think, I, I think you're right. I think it's going to be close. I, I think there's going to be even more scoring. I think Utah will find a way to score because we saw Washington State's defense is happy to allow teams to get, to, to get into the end zone. Um, so I'm looking at, like, 45-41. But, yeah, I, I think we're – that might be the one game we most agree on this week. So – yeah, I think it'll be a fun one. Uh, don't go to sleep when there's Pac-12 action still on out there, everybody. There's some weird stuff that happens in Pac-12 after dark, as Chip Kelly uh, said right after the game last week when UCLA beat Washington State. You know, just some wacky Pac-12 after dark action. It's fun. Stay up. This is a really... You know, maybe not dominant teams in this league, but really quality from top to bottom, really quality league. Another fun one this Saturday night. Yeah, might I suggest switching from beer to coffee after the primetime games? <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we're going to take our final break, everybody. When we come back, we're going to look at some locks of the week, some upset picks, and give you some food suggestions. So stay tuned. We'll see you on the other side. Welcome back for our final segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're here talking about week five action, and we're going to dive in and look at a couple more games against the spread. Specifically, we're going to give you our locks and our upset picks. Let's start off with the locks, John. Who is the surefire lock of the week you like against the spread? I like Ohio State minus 18 over Nebraska on the road. I just haven't been impressed with the Cornhuskers. We talked about pumping the brakes 
on Scott Frost's team in year two uh, in the offseason. Everyone still kind of crowned them, and they entered the year in the top 25, but they haven't had one impressive performance so far this season to me. You know, they blew out Northern Illinois, but that is what it is. But they struggled to beat South Alabama. They lost to Colorado, and they very narrowly avoided an upset um, in Champaign last week against Illinois, came from behind to pull that game out. Obviously, Nebraska's a better team this year than they were last year, but I think maybe Ohio State is as well um, with Justin Fields at quarterback. He's been terrific. He's lived up to every bit of the hype he had as a five-star recruit so far, a perfect fit in Ryan Day's offense. I think the Buckeyes are going to come out with a point to prove in a game that a lot of people in the offseason were pointing to as a potential upset and kind of the, the signature win for Scott Frost. I think Ohio State comes out and rolls by at least three touchdowns on Saturday night. I think they they really make a statement in the Big Ten. I definitely think they're going to be motivated for that game as well. Um, I personally, just looking a little bit east of there to Iowa State, um, I think they're going to be my lock of this week. They're uh, favored by three at Baylor. And, you know, Baylor has looked good this year, but they've looked good against Stephen F. Austin, UT San Antonio, and Rice. Um, this is really their first test of the year, whereas Iowa State has gotten punched in the mouth and gotten back up after that Iowa loss. And I think that, you know, the Cyclones are, they're a damn good team. Let's just face it. Brock Purdy is a great quarterback, and Matt Campbell has just really constructed a winning identity in Ames that hasn't been there in a long, long time. Uh, so, yeah, I think they're really just going to expose the myth of a revitalized Baylor team, both on, you know, I, the defense is ranked as a top 20 unit right now, but Baylor is not a top 20 defense. And Iowa State's going to prove that on, on Saturday in what I think is just going to be a blowout. I, I could see it being like a 17-point victory, just making a laugher out of that spread. Yeah, I mean, we both were really high on the Cyclones coming in. Uh, they really probably should have beat Iowa. Look at the the postgame win expectancy that Phil Connolly of ESPN posted. And I believe Iowa State's win expectancy, based on all the factors, was something like 97%, and they still found a way to lose that game, as they unfortunately so often have against them. But I, I agree with that. I really like Iowa State as well. So uh, what's your upset pick this week, Zach? Who do you like to, to, to pull out the shocker? The Mad Hatter. I think that Kansas is going to go to Fort Worth and they're going to not just beat that 16 point underdog uh, status, but they're going to come out and just take care of TCU and Fort Worth and assert themselves as a team to watch over the next few years in the Big 12. Um, we talked about it, you know, uh, in that opening segment, just how cold, hot and cold TCU has been at the quarterback position. And I think whether they start Max Dugan or they start Alex Delton, it really doesn't matter. Um, Darius Anderson is obviously going to get his touches. He's going to be in triple digits, but the Jayhawks have been really good in the red zone. And I think they're going to allow, they're going to bend, but not break. I think they're going to allow the Horn Frogs to get some yardage, but they're going to clamp down and force field goals when they finally get down inside the 20. I think that Carter Stanley is going to have a big day against the TCU secondary that showed some obvious cracks against Shane Bouchelle. And, uh, you know, I think it stays close down to the final whistle, but I think Les Miles pulls one out of his big old hat and has his day in the sun for the Jayhawks as they get the better of the Horn Frogs. It's going to taste the grass in Fort Worth, Fort Worth and it's going to taste like victory. I love it. I love it. I, 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 I hope that happens just for all the naysayers about Miles' coaching ability. Um, I, you know, took a page out of your book. I'm sticking with the group of five action this week. I like Marshall plus three at home against Cincinnati. Um, I, you know, was really high on Cincinnati in the offseason. I haven't been as high on them after watching them so far this year. They didn't really impress me much by beating UCLA in the season opener. They got just absolutely obliterated by Ohio State. They looked a little better against Miami, Ohio um, in their last game, but even still, I just the Bearcats don't look to be as good of a team as I thought they might be this year. Marshall, on the other hand, you know, 
Two and one, only loss coming by seven points at Boise State. That's certainly nothing to be ashamed of. Pulled out a really nice win over Ohio last week. I think the Thundering Herd are a really good team. They're the best team in the um, in their league to me this year. I really think that they're going to come out uh, and make a statement in the group of five on Saturday and pull out the upset. Isaiah Green uh, puts up some big numbers. I'm also... I've uh, been really impressed with Brendan Knox, their sophomore running back so far this year. Uh, he had 133 yards and really put the team on his back to beat the Bobcats last week. So I like Marshall to come out and knock off Cincinnati and already kind of remove the Bearcats from the rank of teams in contention for the New Year's Six berth. So I like Marshall on Saturday. I could totally see the Thundering Herd thinning out the field in the American Athletic Conference a bit. I think that's that's a really solid pick, and it's a, a game I was looking at for a several things when I was looking through this before our, our recording today. Moving on to uh, pregame fair and fuel-up fair, uh, as we tailgaters like to do. What you going to be eating and drinking this weekend, John? You know, we've been going with some nice summery beers in recent weeks, but it's now officially Saturday will be the first fall um, of the football season uh, officially. So we're moving on to some more hoppy kind of beers. I'm going with Dogfish Head 90-Minute IPA. Uh, it's a tough beer to find sometimes, but got a local store around here in um, Baldwin County that sells it. I'm a huge fan of the Dogfish Head 90-Minute IPA. It's as good of a beer as I've ever had. So I'm going to go with that. Um, and it feels like a chicken wing week. Is there a better football-watching, beer-drinking snack than chicken wings? So I'm going to um, some bake up some chicken wings this week uh, for, for watching the games. Uh, and, and, you know, like you said, not the best week of college football, but the worst week of college football sure as hell beats everything else. Well, and usually the ones that we say aren't the best weeks of college football heading into them end up being the most crazy and the most fun in the end anyway. So I, I, I think that's great. I enjoyed some wings a couple of weeks ago when Buffalo came here to State College in uh, – honor of their visit and uh yeah i highly recommend going with that for sure honestly though like yes it is almost autumn but i feel like in the course of moving across the country and everything i didn't get to celebrate summer munch and uh the store just down the block from us has had some really great pineapples recently so i'm thinking of going and getting some later once we're we're done here with this podcast uh and uh Chopping up three or four pineapples, throwing them in the freezer, and making pina coladas this weekend. I have no clue why that sprung into my head other than I bought a pineapple last week, and it was just absolutely juicy and at that peak, and I was kind of blew my mind. And uh, So yeah, I, I really want some pina coladas, and I think what's going to be nice about that is it's just going to cut through what I'm thinking of eating. So... My wife and I have gotten into making what we've referred to as enchilada chicken. And, uh, you know, on a fall day, like, there's something about pulling out the slow cooker and just letting things go throughout the day. So this really simple, you know, throw in your, your chicken. I usually like to go with a mix of thighs and breast just to mix up the meat and give you all those different flavors. Um, whatever enchilada sauce you like, whether you like to make it yourself or you just want to go get a can of whatever you prefer from the store, toss that in there, toss in some chicken stock, can of green chilies if you're into that, some garlic cloves, let it simmer down for, you know, I'll probably get this started by like 8.30 or 9 in the morning on Saturday so that it's ready right about halftime of that first slate of games. Uh, and, uh, you know, take some forks, pull it up like pulled pork, let it just continue simmering there in the juices. And, you know, throughout the day, tacos, you can do nachos with it later in, in the evening. You know, I'll make up a big batch. So we've just got it to munch on throughout the day and, you know, have some, have a good spread, some lettuce, some tomatoes, some salsas, some guacamole out and yeah, just go to town on it. Yeah, one of the best things to do on these type of Saturdays where you're just going to be sitting around and watching football is to make something crock in a crock pot that's just good to make different things throughout the day. That's what I did with the sliders. We had made pulled pork sliders uh, a few weeks back, just pulling out some nacho chips and stuff like that with those as well. 
with some queso dip and everything. So yeah, that's a that's a great choice. And now I'm uh, I'm gonna get in my car now and head to State College to join you for that. Awesome, definitely do because we're uh, starting to get a proliferation of televisions here as well. I've got uh, four of them now for game days. So. Good times, good times, good times. So yeah, if you're ever in the state college area, listeners, feel free to uh, shoot me a message on Twitter, and maybe you can come over and eat and watch some football. Sounds good. I I am I'm on my way. So awesome. Yeah, you you, you can come out and hang with both of us. Uh, on that note, enjoy the rest of your Wednesday, everybody. Enjoy the rest of the week as we head into our week five action in the last weekend of September. Enjoy the first week of actual fall football, and uh, we'll be back with you next Wednesday to talk more college football here on the Saturday Blitz podcast. Thanks for tuning in.